This is Toastcaster, episode 54, podcast for Toastmasters. Your host, Greg Gazin. Today's episode, Mad Max Fury Road, mission critical communications on a movie set. It's not often that we have a guest on our show that has both a tie-in to Toastmasters and public speaking, along with a major motion picture release, which happens to be the much-anticipated Mad Max Fury Road, starring Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, which hits theaters in less than two weeks. In fact, it's never really happened (laughs) on Toastcaster. But today we speak with Greg Van Borsum, who hails from just outside Sydney, Australia. Now, Greg did have a rough start when it came to public speaking in years gone by, but he's become a motivational speaker and a strategic thought leader. He was also the Crowds and Motion Caption Director on the Academy Award-winning Happy Feet and Happy Feet 2, and most recently as a flight choreographer and weapons specialist in the new movie, Mad Max Fury Road, where he trains some of Hollywood's finest actors. Now, today, Greg will tell us a little bit about the movie his roles in the movie, and note the word roles, what the film is like, and what it's like communicating both with A-list Hollywood actors and in situations that can not only be challenging, they can be downright dangerous. And Greg gives us some other little insights, but you'll have to listen. So please join me in my conversation with Greg Van Borsum. I had the incredible opportunity of interviewing Greg for the for the official Toastmasters podcast, episode 89, back in February. So after you listen to this interview, please feel free to head over to the Toastmasters podcast and and check it out there. Greg, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back again. Uh, Pleasure to be here, Greg. Well, we got some exciting stuff happening. Mad Max Fury Road is coming up fairly quickly, and there's a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement. Maybe for those people who aren't familiar, can you just maybe tell us a little bit about the movie without giving away any of the no spoilers now the movie itself is very reminiscent of mad max 2 which is the road warrior film that went to the u.s and became the big hit that it was it's we realized that it needed to be a chase movie and we when we first started meeting actually about the film back in 97 and we met with mel gibson mel said he wanted to do the film but we had to do it now because otherwise he was going to be too old physically <laughs> to be able to do the level of action he was honest he just said i'll be too, he said in five years i will be too old to do that <laughs> because the action was so huge and we took it to such a new level that, you know, he knew he wouldn't do it. So when we got Tom Hardy, that was a, a, another great step because Tom is the new Mel. He's just amazing. So we were lucky there, but the action is huge. And I, I mean, when you plan any film out like this, you have to think in the future because when you make a film, you can't make it for the audience now. You've got to make it for the audience when it's going to be released. So if you do a, an action sequence that's based on, say, the Bourne films or on wire work, when it's released in the cinemas, it's old, it's passe, so people don't care. You have to think about where is cinema not right now and how do I make something that's going to wow people now, you know, when it comes out. And that's, that's what we hopefully did. We've taken everything real. All the stunts are real. The action's real. Everything was done 100% legitimate, every stunt sequence. Uh, we have CG backgrounds, digital backgrounds, of course, to create storms and things. But everything, the vehicles were hand-built in Australia. We spent about $90 million on vehicle builds. It was huge. And some of the stuff is outstandingly monstrous. I mean, you know, they make monster trucks look small. And to do fight sequences and all the action on top of moving vehicles is, you know, has the potential to be incredibly dangerous. But we get around that by having such fantastic safety and stunt crews. So I was going to ask what your role is specifically in the movie. 
I'm in charge. Like my role in Mad Max, and I've been working with George for many years as a director, but my role on Mad Max was basically the, the fight designer or fight choreographer and the weapons advisor and weapons specialist. So I designed all the action fight sequences in the movie and all the hand-to-hand sequences, all the weapon sequences, all the gunfighting scenes. I dreamt up all the sequences and the scenes and had to make them come to fruition by training actors, stunt performers, the doubles. And through that, I mean, I'm not the brain child behind every moment in the film because I don't believe anyone is. Well, I noticed, I looked on the internet movie database and I noticed that uh, your son was there and you're, you're, you got a part in the movie too? I've got two roles in the film. I'm the bullet farmer's bodyguard. I'm, I'm the Praetorian in the movie. I ride around in a tank and it's, uh, you'll see little flashes of me every now and again in, in trailers, but I'm all through the movie. And then at the end of the film, I play the winch man with a mask on because they, they needed a, a sort of a thick set guy to do some stuff. So I jumped up <laughs> and did that. And, and Mason's the war pup. Mason's in lots of shots in the movie. You'll see him when, when Tom gets dragged into the, the winch room gets thrown down on the bed. He's got long hair and they're cutting his hair off. Mason's a little kid that comes out from under the bed like a rat and collects all the hair and runs off with it. <laughs> oh, neat. But he's the altar boy. He's in, he's in lots of scenes and oh, he's at the cool. end of the film. He's front and center. Yeah, it was great for him because he was five when he started it and he was six when we finished it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. We work as a team. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in teams and I, had, I was very fortunate that the people I got as my stunt performers and my doubles and the actors, I mean, Tom and Charlize brought tons to the table. I talk to everybody and I get the best result together. You know, it's, that's why I'm not a big lover of awards because I don't think any one person deserves an award. It's, an, it's a team. And if you don't have the right team around you, you don't deserve to win anything anyway. But we were fortunate. We had a fantastic, passionate team. And some of the greatest results came from those team setups. You know, we, we sat down together and I said, if there's any dead moments in fight scenes, pick me up on it, pull them apart. Let's, let's get this thing right. And so we all had an input. So I think it's no me factor. It's, it's a we factor. So how dangerous is this? You said there's a lot of safety involved, but how dangerous is it? Because not everything is CGI. Oh God, no, hardly anything in the film CGI. I mean, every stunt sequence was, was real. I mean, all the crashes, every, t- every time we crash a truck, it's real. And you can see in even the trailers, you'll see how the vehicles actually fold up when they get hit because you can see the compression factor. You don't get that in CG. They sort of bypass some of those elements. And we made a point of, and it was actually, we saw Fast and the Furious 1 in the old days, back in 97, 98, whenever it came out. We sat down together and watched that. And that's when we solidified the reasoning about why we had to go real. We didn't want it to be a CG film. We wanted the experience for the audience to go back what it was and, and be traditional to the old Mad Max and be real. So... We brought in the very best stunt drivers in the world, the very best crusty motorcycle riders, you know, the crusty demon boys and some of the great Aussie, you know, Robbie Marshall, Stevie Gall, you know, all those great riders came together. We had some of the very best stunt people and the stunt team came from right around the world and we came together and did something real and it shows, it really resonates with the audience and when you see a truck get crashed, we're crashing that truck. When you see a body come off something, it's coming off. One of my good mates, Nathan Lawson, he has to fall off the back of a vehicle at about 75, 80 K an hour with no shirt on and he gets kicked off the vehicle. And, and all I could give him was an elbow pad about the size of a, a 20 cent Australian 20 cent piece, which is about an inch and a half. And I made it skin color and I taped it to his left elbow and said, when you come off, make sure you hit that bit first. <laughs> you worked on the happy feet and the happy feet two movies. So uh, trying to coordinate things like even crowd coordination, how, how would that differ in a movie like Mad Max versus happy feet? Well, Happy Feet, you, you lay out the designs later. I mean, I know what I've got. Like, George would actually capture the, the first five or six hero characters before I would do my, my second unit capture. And so the motion capture he would do, I would play that in front and I would look at the computer screen and I would lay out my characters behind that to make it feel real and organic. 
and at the same time build the performance so it didn't detract from Mumble and the other characters, but it gave them more life. Because in a world that's black and white, you've got to be very aware that you can lose the main characters very quickly. So little elements about people turning away from screen at certain times so it brought Mumble out more because he was white or just certain small things you have to coordinate as well as bringing in vignetted performances like in the Adelie land where you've got Adelies in their real environment steal rocks from each other's nests because that's how they build a bigger nest. And so there's, I have that in the background. There's little thefts going on and there's relationships and I base them on a Hispanic community. So, hey, baby, what are you doing? Come here, come here, you know. So they're all trying to chat up the girls and there's all this hot-blooded male environment that I, I created in Adelie Land versus the, the more sedate world of Emperor Land, which was more sort of regal and very law-abiding. So they were very <laughs> interesting dynamics to play out, you know, and, and to capture that. It, it takes a lot of work to make it look real, but we had great dancers, the same thing, that did, the, did a wonderful job. I know we were talking offline, we were talking about actually having real people in the scenes so that you could do motion capture for Happy Feet. I, I thought that was actually quite fascinating because I had no idea. I figured it was all just created on online and on the computer. No, we, we used, the, we, had, we even held a Penguin Academy. We got all the top dancers from around the planet. We brought them in and we taught them how to walk like penguins for weeks because Emperor Penguins, and I, my, my, all my family can do it. <laughs> There's a way an Emperor Penguin walk, walks versus a rock hopper versus an Adelie Penguin versus a fairy penguin. They all walk differently. And so we had to train them in every type of walk because if I was doing a background capture, and I said, right, we need some chin straps, we need this, we need that, we need to send our delis. They had to walk differently for every capture and, and perform differently as well because their behaviors are different. We made the chin strap penguins very militant. So they were very strong and, you know, very military sort of based. And we made every penguin culture was different. So we had to bring that into their movements and they did a wonderful job. Wow. So that's different. And we, we have to create a world, that, a world in a world, you know, and a culture in a culture. So we're Mad Max. I mean, that's, you know. It's, it's a, a survivalistic world. So it's people that have come through, whoever survived the apocalypse and made it through to this end. And most of them are dying very short lives because there's either no food or there's no water or there's, there's tumors and, you know, it's, a, it's a, a nuclear world. So everything's, everyone's dying of tumors and things so that people have a very short lifespan, which is why when I did the War Boys, part of the Immortan, you know, the guy that wears the big skull mask, his troops there, they put all their work into the vehicles because they're young kids and they're hot-blooded. And they are the armor for the vehicles. They're more than happy to give their lives to save the vehicle than vice versa. So they will quite happily jump off and blow up another vehicle or do something like that to, to save their vehicle because that's, that's what they, they worship. I mean, this has been pretty exciting from sort of a gadget guy technology perspective and also as from a fan perspective, both of the Mad Max series and of the Happy Feet. But obviously here we're speaking about... The communication and leadership. We're talking about Toast, Toastcaster, our podcast for Toastmasters. So I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit towards communication. I mean, you've you've got experience in film. You've got experience in weapons. You also have a lot of experience now in communication. Quite often, when we speak about leadership and communication. Quite often, it's in a personal or in an office environment. I would suspect that it would be extremely different when we're talking about being on a scene of a movie where there's all kinds of things going on. How does the communication differ than it would be like in an office? Well, it depends on the film. I mean, if you've got a film like Mad Max, we're all, we're all commed up with radio set up. We've basically got fitted earpieces that are skin colored so that we can wear them on camera and no one sees. But at the same time, they're connected through to our radio so I can keep contact with the entire crew because you have to, because if a stunt's out of time or something's not quite right and you don't pull that stunt, someone could get badly hurt. So we had to have that level of communication that was reliable. So we did that. And communicating under that environment, is we go right back to the rudimentary phase of hand signals a lot of the time. If there's no, if there's no voice comms, it goes to hands. You know, hand, fist on top of head means I'm good. There's little things that we use 
So we know that everybody's set and in place and locked off and their, their pick points are all right. Communication goes right back to Stone Age days, basically, but that, that's how we get through it on a, on a loud set like Mad Max. But then if you're on a, a normal set environment, you cut out the crap. You lay it out very fast because you know time is money and you know that people need to get the gist of what has to happen very quickly and the actors are very responsive. And on a set, this is how I speak. What I'm doing now is how I speak to the actors and they give it back and I expect it back. You know, I expect it to be a two-way street. I have to validate what I come up with and they have to validate why they're doing it. And that makes us equals and that's what matters on the set. These days, the acting community at a high end are so switched on. You tell them something once, they go, yep, got it. And they have got it. They don't just tell you they've got it and don't know what they're talking about. They have it. And so someone like Charlize or Tom, if you tell them something once, she'll go, yep, I'm good. And you know you can walk away. You don't have to stand there and keep bashing out the same point to them. And they look straight at you once the, once the shot's done. And are you good with that or not? And I'll, I'll either give the, the, the hand across the neck, like cut the throat, not do it again, or good to go. Thumbs up really, really fast communication levels. And you, at the same time, the biggest thing I think for anyone dealing with someone well-known is you never treat them as anything but a normal person. Like you're talking to your mom or your brother or your cousin or your mate. The, the minute you treat them as anything other than that, you, you've built a barrier that's very hard to overcome. I treat Tommy and Charlize and you know, every actor I've ever worked with, Army Hammer, a lot of them, you know, every one of them I've always treated just like we're mates. And we end up becoming mates out of it because there's no alteration in our behavior. Um, there's nothing fake about it. If I think she did a crap job, I'll tell her she did a crap job. If she did a great job, I'll say that's great. With Tom, we are real good mates. And so we literally, we never say anything nice to each other, each other which you know, in Australian terms means you are good mates. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever come into a situation where there's a little bit of an awe factor or a little bit of an intimidation factor? I don't care about fame. I mean, I never have, and that's just me. I think if someone's gotten somewhere, they're either very good at what they do, they've all, or they've been slightly fortunate, or they've got some some backing from somewhere. But in the big scheme of things, you've got to go back to the fact that we're people and we're just people. And if someone's good at something, and if you're there with them, you're probably good too. So, so deal with the fact that you're both good because you've got to realize a lot of actors, you know, and we nickname them all kinds of funny names like, you know, skin puppets and warm props. And, you know, but, you know, they're, they're fantastic and they do a great job and, and they respect you as much as you respect them. And it, it just becomes that relationship, which you can take into a friendship. Riley Keough and I are very good, good friends and she's Elvis's granddaughter and she's just been wonderful. Megan Gale, who you may not know of, but you will because Megan, she's a, a, she's a top model. And we had lots of models in the film that just really beautiful people. You know, Zoe Kravitz, you know, Lenny Kravitz' daughter. She's, mm -hmm. she's wonderful. So, I mean, but so funny to be around as, just as people because you just hang out together so much. You just become friends through no other reason than that's all they've got to talk to. <laughs> the average person, of course, doesn't get to see behind the scenes. I mean, there's a little bit more happening with, uh, with Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. But I mean, you hear all kinds of other stories. But what I'm wondering, what would happen in a situation where you have someone who is extremely opinionated, let's say, and it's almost they come out with the <laughs> That's air. That's me. Of, <laughs> I was going to say they come up with the air. You've got pole. me on the line. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, they, they've done this before. You know, I've done, you know, 150 pictures or whatever. The actors on, on the screen have as much power on the set as the director, sometimes more. And I, I mean, I love opinionated people because you know where you stand really quickly. I mean, Colin Gibson, who's our production designer, is the most opinionated, painful human being and my best friend I've ever, you know, he's amazing. So that's what gives, made him so close to me because we're both so opinionated and I love his opinion because it's good. And if Colin Gibson says to me that that's terrible, don't do it, I listen because I know that he's honest. He doesn't try and sugarcoat things. He doesn't try and make it all sound glossy so he sounds better. If he thinks it's crap, he goes, no, it's crap. Or if he thinks it's great, he goes, that's fantastic, do that. 
I find a lot of the top actors are the same way. They have an opinion on something for a good reason because it either doesn't feel true to their character or it's something that they don't feel tells the story as well as something else could or a look could. You know, Clint Eastwood was great at that stuff. I mean, he'd take out dialogue and just put a look in and it made his character so much stronger. And I appreciate those people on the set. I mean, George has always been very fortunate that he's had a, a core group of people around him that are like that because the minute you surround yourself with yes people, your career's over. You know, so, I mean, we've been lucky. We've got, we had Katie Hoy, who was great. We've got Mark Sexton. We've got Colin Gibson. We've got myself and George's other half, Margie. She's so on the money with her comments and so blunt with them. And it's, that's what makes her so good because she states the opinion and no one cares the cost at the other end in regards to their position or their job. They just believe it's the best process you can get out of it is the better picture and the better story. That's more valuable than anything else. Now, sometimes you run into a situation where it has nothing to do with uh, ego or arrogance or, or knowledge on behalf of, of the actor, but sometimes it may have to do with something that happened to them in the past. And in the case of Charlize Theron, I understand that there was a shooting incident in, uh, in her formative years, and although she still has to shoot a gun, how, how did you deal with that? Yeah, Charlize didn't just have to shoot a gun. She has to be almost like a gun guru in the film. And the incident in her life was life-changing because, you know, there was loss of her father through a, through a murder, through a, a, a shotgun, and it was in front of her. So she had a, an inherent fear of firearms, and for a good reason, of course. It happened on the set one day when somebody else was showing us some firearms work, and, and I was saying to George at the time, I don't think she's ready for this, and she wasn't. She had a very hard time. So I took her under my wing in, in respect of that and because I've seen what's happened with people with that stuff before. And I mean, she had a lot to work through. And I mean, to make someone look fantastic, to me, you have to make them fantastic what they do. So we spent lots and lots of time in my own time as well, like especially weekends and that. And I banned all production from the range. No one was allowed near me except the people I selected to be out there because I needed her to be in a trusting environment. We worked through it together. I mean, it was a big thing for her to get through. She'd pick up a firearm that was completely empty and she would be breathing like she was going to pass out. It was that level of fear for her. And, you know, I was incredibly proud of the way she came through this stuff because we would be on the range and I had other shooters around me and I had people shooting long range rifles and handguns and different things. So she had to be around ambient gunfire and she was reacting to every shot. And after a number of hours, she was looking at me and I said, you're doing really well. And she goes, we haven't done much yet. I said, yeah, but you're not reacting to the gunfire anymore. That's step one. Because anytime I see a film and I see actors blinking when they fire guns and that I know they can't shoot. I had to make her so real that she had to become real. And all my actors are trained with live ammunition, which the studio freaks out about, but that's just the way it is. Because I believe that you need to see cause and effect. You need to see stuff fall down when you shoot it. You know? And so we set up steel targets and we, we shot them down. And we, she got so good. I must say, Charlie's drilled and trained so hard that she got right into it. And we, had, we have penalties on the site and on the set we are, and the range. When Charlie's would come in and say the wrong thing, she'd get push-ups, <laughs> just the usual thing. So... No one was out of the woods. Tom had to give them too. So did I. If I did something wrong, push-ups for me too. So no one was above anybody, but it was still my range and the safety was up to me. And she kept working and working and she got to the point where she'd ring me, go, are you on set today? I'd say, yeah, uh, for about two hours. Why? She goes, can we go shooting? So she got really into it. She became so proficient and so dedicated to learning the craft of, of shooting and not just one gun. She had to learn from revolvers, how to load them quickly to, to semi-automatic handguns, to the old stripper clip SKS rifles, to you name it. She had to learn how to load every single, and I mean fast. So did Tom. I did Tom his gun drill training. I made him reload guns faster and faster and faster every day for months to make him look like a legend. And you see it in one of the new trailers. I think it's called Retaliate. You'll see a couple of quick gun reloads, and that's just normal time. I had Tom drilling it so much that he became lightning fast. 
And Charlize was the same. She can punch herself out through windows and shoot motorbikes overhead and stuff with rifles and handguns. And she was nailed it. She was fantastic. So did you find at times that you had to maybe, if there was a situation where it was a little bit tense for her, where you would actually just maybe stop and, and talk to her and just let her vent a little? Usually that stuff happened because of the, lo- the longevity of the shoot. That wasn't so much with the firearms. She, she, by the time she walked onto set, we'd probably done around, I couldn't even tell you how many hundred hours of tra- training together. She was so well-versed on the firearm systems and the weapon systems. You know, and the greatest thing I teach actors is that firearms are just like driving a car. Once you understand how the mechanics of it work, it's like getting from a Volvo to a Volkswagen to a, to a Holden to a Ford. You kind of sit in there, you look at it quickly, and maybe you might flick the window wipers on instead of the indicator. After a couple of minutes, you go, okay, I got it. And so every firearm, though it might be slightly different, if you look at it long enough and have a quick muck around with it, you figure out the, the nuts and bolts. And she got that good that she could do that. So there was no need to go through the, that process with her because by the time she walked on the set, she was furiosa. She had it nailed. What would you say to people in general, not necessarily uh, Ms. Theron, but what would you say to people if they were in a situation that they had to do something that they had this huge fear of, or like even something like a car stunt or just something where there could be some at risk? How do you go about talking to them to try to maybe calm them down or help them build confidence? That's a difficult one in the stunt world because everyone, <laughs> if that's their line of work, they love it. And you can say, hey, can you jump this car for a build? They go, yeah, okay. Cool. You know, that's their chance of doing something awesome and, you know, getting the extra bonus. That's different because the stunt people love that stuff. I mean, it's usually the actors, like Nicholas Holt had to use firearms for the first time. And and so to talk him through specifics on how to hold it on or off the actor and just little things to make it feel safe for him in the regards of not him holding the gun, but him accidentally shooting someone else, you know, because even though we're using blanks on the set, you know, blank fire weapons can still cause damage if used incorrectly. So to let him know that this is where he points it, he picks up the gun and does that, and we drill that movement lots and lots of times, and then they, you see them get more comfortable, and they, they know it's a blank fire weapon, and we dry fire and drill the scene so many times that by the time they get there, they're ready. But, I mean, if someone has to talk to someone about being nervous about things, it's just a matter of taking your time and just calming down and doing it slowly. Like all our fight scenes and all our vehicle stunt stuff is practiced stationary start with if we're doing a fight on a vehicle we, we practice on the sand we just chalk it out on the like mud map it on the sand and we we walk it on the sand and then once we feel that's good enough then we get up on a stationary vehicle and we do it there then we move the vehicle at five kilometers an hour then 10 then 20 then 30 and 50 then 80 you know and so by the time we get up to 80 we're so versed at the speed setups and how we're going to move that everyone's good and so it's just that process of taking it slowly and not rushing into it and doing it because that's how you get hurt I'm thinking back just of the old adage of, you know, people fear public speaking more than they fear death, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I'm thinking, okay, is there some kind of an analogy we use or is there some kind of method that you would use or some general advice you would give to someone if they're trying to help someone in a situation where they feel it's quote unquote life or death? Any advice you could offer on that? I mean, I always try and relate something back to either them or myself that I've been through and where I had the same feeling you know, which might just echo what they're going through. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing for me that I always try and read the other person well enough to know what they're experiencing and see how I might be able to relate to it. Because it, like any situation, if someone has been through it or they've suffered the, the similar thing, you're, you're more inclined to open up to them and talk to them. And that's a very important thing. You just can't come at it and, and sort of have that wall up and say, well, look, this is what you're going through. It's like, you know what? No, we've, we've all suffered something at some point in time that we can reflect on and go, you know what? When I went through that, it was a, it was a similar thing. 
And this is how I found was a way of getting through it. And even if you can't directly help them, you may be able to guide them to the help just by using that. But if you can if you can get people to open up to you about that stuff, then you start getting to the core of it. I mean, Richard Carter was the same. He played the bullet farmer in Mad Max and, and Richard had an inherent fear of guns too. And I said, <laughs> he thought he was going to have a double for all the stuff. And I said, no, not on my watch. <laughs> he had to learn everything about firearms. And I mean, we had to negotiate for him to shoot live ammunition as well. But same thing in the end. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Such a great character to work with and such an enigmatic person. You know, but that was the thing. We spoke for two days before we touched a gun. We sat down and we spoke about life, about Templars. We went about all, all kinds of things. It's just history of different cultures and how this would go into his character and how he could build his character from this. And then this is why he would probably choose this weapon system. And then we started dry firing, working with that stuff. So it's just a process of how to get to the core of someone's sort of being to find out what the problem might be or how to overcome the issue. And that's usually just how I work. I like to, I like to know the people. And it's the same with running any team, I mean, or any situation that I've been in. I, if I can get to the core of the person, then I can get to the solution of the issue. You know, and, that, and that goes to anything. That's very, very wise advice. You speak with authority. You speak with a lot of confidence. In fact, you're going to be competing at your district level for, for Toastmasters, but you weren't always comfortable on stage. I thought I was going to be, you know, I, I was, I turned pro in bodybuilding at 20 years of age and I was 130 kilos of muscle and I was invited back to my school, which I never thought I'd get invited back to because I was a pretty horrendous student, but I got invited back to my school to give out the graduation certificates and I assumed I'd be able to walk out on stage and do a keynote speech, which I actually didn't know that a keynote speech went for so long at the time. I walked out in front of 500 people and literally froze like a deer in the headlights. It took me to go to the very core of my soul to try and find anything that I could actually verbalize. I, I don't know how long it even took. I, I still say to this day, I'm not sure who was going to speak first, the audience to tell me to get off or whether I was going to say something at all. And I eventually spoke about some stupid thing. I don't know. I think I spoke to these high school kids about getting married and having kids and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it was so, I was so out of my depth. I left there and I thought, I thought I'd never speak again on stage. I was so ashamed of myself. You know, it was through, through my mother that, you know, she actually enticed me to come to Toastmasters. I remember you sharing the story with me. And in fact, for those of you who want to hear the whole story, you can listen to it on the Toastmasters podcast. But I remember you telling me you turned 45-minute keynote into three minutes worth of garble. Yeah, it was terrible. I remember you told me that. And I just <laughs> that's something that I'll remember for. <laughs> that's something that I'm definitely going to remember for a long time. I think I even told the kids that their parents would be their best friends and the kids all laughed. <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen with that fortune cookie. I remember that story. That's it. Uh, and that's a true story. That fortune cookie will haunt me forever. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, so I guess your your district conference is coming up and you're looking forward to trying to make it to the world championship? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the aim. I mean, I started Toastmasters now. It's been about 14, 15 months ago. That was my, my sort of journey back. And I mean, I journeyed back into Toastmasters for a reason, you know, because I had a hardship after Max and we we went back to building and, and one of my colleagues suicided and I, I ended up getting up to speak to a lot of people about it, which has now been kind of a strange thing because now I've become quite a well-known counter-suicide speaker in, in, the, in the, the construction industry. And, you know, so I, I think the reason that I don't have a lot of fear for speaking is because I speak with heart and with cause. I mean, I can't get up and just parrot some party speech or some, I don't do that so well. I, I have to get up and speak from some experience that's been a life-changing thing for me or in someone else's life around me. And that level of heart takes away the fear because you're speaking about something that people need to hear and need to know. I was really honored. I mean, I got, a, I got a, an email from a, quite a well-known TEDx speaker recently who heard me speak at that conference and said that I was the most inspiring speaker he'd ever heard and they want to try and get me to America to speak. 
And that was, I felt very honored to get told that by someone who's such a, a well-known speaker himself. So, uh, you know, that, that is where I'd like the journey to go one day. I'd like to speak around the world and try and inspire people to be more and to overcome problems and come back from adversity because we've been through, everyone's been through stuff and we've all got baggage, we've all got problems, but you can turn that stuff into the power that makes you fuel yourself. I mean, I try and use the, the negativity as fuel for positive stuff and that's, that's the way I, I like to move forward. You do have an incredible story. In fact, maybe tell our audience a little bit about your Team Infinity. Yeah, Team Infinity was a, a not even a brainchild. It was a conversation I had with a friend of mine, Cameron, who you know was a young Australian of the year, and and uh, he's built multiple businesses up into the you know forty million dollar mark. We were both failed school kids, and he caught up with me a while back, and we both discovered that we were doing bits of speaking, and so we said we should start something. We should start talking together, and then we said, you know what, screw it, let's start something worthwhile. So we started Team Infinity, and we said let's bring people in that have all had really bad child, either bad childhoods or didn't do well at school or didn't do well in early life who have managed to come through and make it to become something through adversity. And not just in one area, it has to be multiple areas they have to have succeeded in. And so we put together Team Infinity and we've been very fortunate that it's been growing in the respect of who wants to be involved with it. I mean, just two days ago, we're looking to to go into partnership deals with radio stations who are all wanting to get on board because we're doing these massive fundraising events, especially where I live now on the coast because I see so many lost kids. And so we've got Stephen Bock, who's an Everest summiteer. He's an international aerobatic pilot. He's one of the top salesmen in the world. We've got Cameron, who's a multiple business owner, uh, a commercial pilot and numerous other things. We've got Angry Anderson, who was, you know, the reason Guns N' Roses exist. He's a top international rocker himself. He's played with some of the biggest bands in the world. His band Rose Tattoo are famous. He's, he's won OAM's Mo Awards, everything. He's also one of the greatest charity workers in Australia. We've got other people wanting to get involved all the time now. And it's all for a good cause so we can change people's lives who are having hard times. And Team Infinity will always, as a team, be a charity. Like individually, you know, when we do corporate stuff and that, we will eventually probably have to charge because we do have to eat. But as far as as a team goes, we really want to make a difference in people's lives. And that's the reason we've all been through adversity, all had major losses. Like Cameron's wife died at 26 when, when he was going well at business and that floored him. Stephen went through a massive divorce. Everyone's been through horrible stuff. Angry Anderson was molested as a child. Everyone had to come back from this stuff. And it's been such a, an inspiration for me to be even involved with these guys as friends and as speakers. But to have a team of us that can go around and really inspire with four very different stories that give people the key points. And there's about seven key points that are identical for each of us that can actually bring you out of what you're in at the moment and help you move forward. Because we don't want to be fluff talkers. Too many people talk a lot of motivational garbage and you leave there going, well, I'm motivated, but why and how do I get out of this? We want to give people the key points and the steps that can move them forward. We're always on the, on the phone. People are always more than welcome to, to email us and stuff. We will do, always do our best to help out because that's what we're here for. Well, sounds absolutely fascinating. Greg Van Borsum, thank you very much for inspiring us today, sharing about the Mad Max Fury Road movie and some of your trials and tribulations and the things that you went through in in public speaking. All the best uh, moving forward. Thank you, and uh, I hope you enjoy the film if you see it, and hopefully I get to the International Speech Contest in Vegas and uh, get to see the pretty lights. (laughs) I'm certainly looking forward to both. (laughs) Me too. Thanks, Greg. It's been great speaking with you. Well, that was an absolute blast, and I really hope that you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you'd like to hear the original conversation I had with Greg, please head over to the Toastmasters podcast or toastmasterspodcast.com. Look for episode 89 called Greg Van Borsum, A Real Action Movie. 
Though in that episode, Greg shares the dramatic ups and downs of his professional and personal journey and discusses how anyone can overcome serious obstacles in life. Now, when it comes to this episode, again, hopefully you enjoyed it. If you're listening to us through Toastcaster or iTunes, thank you very much. We would appreciate it if you could leave some feedback from us because it certainly helps with our ratings. Once again, this is Greg Gazin from Toastcaster, podcast for Toastmasters. Till the next time, thanks for tuning in.